You're listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2212 South Broad Street. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. In the spirit of connection this season, we, we're hearing from different um, passionate people among us who can show us how uh, disconnected things are like Jesus is calling them back together. So we talked to Alex talked to us last week about um, our relationship with the earth, creation, our connect- connectedness with creation. And um, we asked Jeff to speak tonight about racism and why anti-racist work matters so much to him. Um, so he's gonna he's gonna tell some of his story. Some somebody one of my friends asked me, "Is this is this gonna be like diversity training? Like I like I get on my job? It's not. Jeff's not trying to do that. He you know he knows we all know that stuff. Um, he's really gonna tell his story about why anti-racism matters to him and to Jesus." Got my clicker. I think I'm good. So, <clears throat> why anti-racism matters to me? Um, so usually, well, what I did in the five, it's probably a good idea to do again in the seven, right? I start off by saying, I'm a white man, right? Just in case anyone was wondering, I'm a white man. Um, so this is, for talking about racism and being anti-racist is a pretty heavy thing. Um, one of the things I thought would be a good place for us to start is with, these are some of the comments that some um, black people had, some advice actually for white folks that are trying to become anti-racist or working in, um, towards an anti-racist mindset. So let me read them to you. So <clears throat> first one, really good advice, right? If you're just now feeling the urgency of the need to fight systemic racism, chances are you're white. Most Black people are pretty aware of this. Um, Here's another one. You will get better at this, but at first you will F up a lot. And you will always F up a little. Good to know. We're people of grace, right? Um, And this one I really like too. Your privilege is the biggest risk to this movement as a white person. Your privilege, though, is also the biggest benefit you can bring to the movement. So we could probably just kind of stop and just talk about that stuff. But uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story, my background, um, and then some, a couple of specific stories for me um, in my life that were really impactful um, and talk about sort of how they impacted me. So a couple of pictures, right? This is my family. So my mom and dad and my sister. So we are the perfect little family. Um, my mom is 100% Polish. My dad is half Swiss, half German, Swiss-German, like the Pennsylvania-Dutch thing. Um, History on both sides goes way back that we know of. You know, there's a family Bible in some uh, Mennonite Historic Society that goes back to like 1518. So um, I'm kind of as white as they come, right? Um, I grew up in Harleysville. This is, again, super white area. Like by the census, it's like 92% white. Uh, I went to a Mennonite high school, like 98% white. During this time, as a, as a kid growing up, I was in a uh, Mennonite church, and the only black person I knew was our choir director. That was it, Ted Hughes, only guy. Um, so I lived in this kind of a, this white cocoon 
really, and then went to Maasai College, another very white institution. They're in like probably 85 to, you know, 90% um, white. But while at Maasai College for me, and it's like out in the middle, um, it's north of Harrisburg, so in the middle of um, the state, um, my time at Maasai was like sort of the beginning of um, my transformation, like my, my understanding and sort of awakening to this idea of like white privilege and the difference between individual racism and systemic racism. Um, and one of the ways it started for me was just a relationship. Um, one of my best friends, my roommate, um, Chris Tassie, uh, is a Haitian guy. We played soccer together. And he, like, very patient with me, but um, really in a lot of different social situations, would sort of point out these things to me. He's like, we'd be at restaurants. We went together. We wouldn't get served as quickly. And, you know, the first time, second time we'd go, it was like, oh, whatever. It's busy waitress. But it really, it gets to a point where you're just like, this is not something you could ignore or like explain away. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think for me, it starts with relationships. Um, <clears throat> so the three stories. The first one happened um, while I was at Messiah, but at Messiah's Philly campus. So this is in, um, it was, it's no longer open, but it was right at, on uh, Temple's campus at Broad and Diamond. Um, I did a three-week cross-cultural experience, they called it, where I lived with an African-American family um, in North Philadelphia. And really, lots of different experiences I could talk about within it. But to sort of sum it up, what it ended up being was this, a whole collection of experiences where I was at a YMCA, and I was the only white face there. I was at uh, a black church, and I was the only white face there, um, living with a black family in North Philadelphia when um, I got locked out one night, and I was scared to death, and I was the only white person I saw uh, I actually remember, this kind of just popped right back in um, earlier today. I was riding a bus at like midnight, lost in the city. And someone said to me, like, you're like a white ghost. And I was just like shaking. But what it, the whole, that sort of collection of experiences at Messiah Philly for me, what it did was, I was like traumatized by it. And I immediately went back out to my little white area again, my little white cocoon and it, at the college and then back to Harleysville. Um, but what I experienced was like just for a brief moment what it feels like to be in a minority group. But I was able to like jump right back and part of my white privilege is like, like I could go somewhere else. And what I, you know, talking through with people, I was like what I, uh, it was the first time I kind of like was sensitized to my whiteness um, and that I was white and I was paying attention to it. So that's 21 years ago. Um, and that, like I said, it was sort of an awakening for me. What that really led to was me changing majors from, um, you know, psychology to social work to going on and get my master's in social work here at Temple, meeting Rachel, but, you know, it was both being about social justice. So it was really this life-changing path that I went on, um, you know, and just feeling called to the city. That's sort of how we came to circle, uh, a big piece of it. So the second story I have, fast forward, now this is only like, this is uh, probably 15 years later. Um, this is our house in Germantown. And this um, was another like, really life-altering experience for me. Um, essentially, I got, um, late one night um, in the winter, I got mugged. Uh, I had a guy walk up on me and um, put a, pointed a gun at my head. I mean, literally was like poking me in the head with a gun barrel. Um, 
He was a black man. Um, he was about my size, but just because of the situation and like the proximity of everything, I didn't get a look at him at all. Uh, called the police. Police were involved, um, and police like immediately put me in a car and took me to like four or five different places, literally, and first to a gas station, and they had uh, a black man handcuffed and they're shining a floodlight on him, and I'm in the back of the car, and they're saying, is that him? I said, well, you know, I told you at the scene when I gave my report, I had no idea what this person looks like. I can tell you what the gun barrel looks like, no clue what his face looked like. He was wearing a black hoodie, that was it. And I know he, I know he was a black man, but like, I, can't, I can't ID someone like that. They then took me to four other places, four other men in the neighborhood, handcuffed, floodlight shined on them, just because they were black, just because they were wearing a black hoodie and they happened to be walking in that neighborhood around that time. Um, <clears throat> gave a full police report two weeks later. Um, and again, in the police report, very specific. I have no idea what the person looks like. Two weeks later, detectives come to our house, are in our kitchen, and lay out a bunch of mugshots and say to me, like, can you identify the person that... Uh, that pulled this gun on you. And I just said, like, I don't know if you didn't, did you read the report? I had no, I didn't get a good look at this guy. I have no idea what he looked like. I said, you know, I, there's no way with any confidence I could even come close to identifying. And he just proceeded, continued on, and then said to me, like, well, sir, tell me, do, just look at these pictures again, take a good hard look, and do any of them, any of the men pictured here make you feel uncomfortable? Any of them. And I was just like, I was just, you know, thunderstruck. I was like, this is crazy. Like, so based upon my, you know, feeling uncomfortable about a picture of someone, you know, you're going to railroad um, So it was really that, you know, being, you know, just over and over again, the course of just this, what was a traumatic event for me, um, turned into this, like, eye-opening experience of, like, oh, my gosh, like, there are huge evil systems at play. I mean, seeing the systemic racism like just running through that series of events was just mind-boggling to me. Um, so, and I'll fast forward just the one, one last quick story. Um, and this was just four weeks ago. <clears throat> In Center City, um, I was uh, early for a meeting, so I stopped at a coffee shop and I'm sitting on the sitting on the porch at this car, or the patio of the coffee shop, and um, uh, 60 some year old um, black man walks by with a shoe shine kit, and he's asking people if they want a shoe shine, and he like singles me out. He's like, "You need a shoe shine. Those are some rough shoes. You need a shoe shine." And I'm like, "No, nah, I'm good. I'm good." Uh, he was insistent, and he starts singing a song. So I'm like, "This is crazy." He's like, "I'll give it to you for free." So I was like, oh, "Okay, I'll shoe shine." So he shines one shoe, um, and I'm like, I'll give you a couple bucks. I gave him $5, and he starts shining the other shoe. And he's spending like 10 minutes on each shoe. Um, and I just didn't want it to be some like weird transaction. So I started talking to him. I'm like asking him his name. I'm asking him about like where he's from, sort of some of his history. And he's like telling me this stuff. And I was like, this is really cool. This is a, you know, what a cool interaction. And at the end, you know, he stops he's like he's like you're all set and I'm like like I'm gonna give him I gave him another ten dollars it's like fifteen dollar shoe shot I've never paid for shoe shot in my life so fifteen dollars seemed like a lot to me but 
I give him the, another $10, and he looks at me, and he's just like, man, you cheap. And he just stood up, and he walked off. Like, And, you know, one way you can just look at it like a, just a, a money transaction or a business deal gone bad or something. But I think the, other, what it, the takeaway for me was, like, there's this, there's a divide. There's, this, there's a separation there um, that I think in many, we all sort of encounter and bump up against this. Um, but it's there. And I think the way I kind of experience it is not as like, oh, I'm, I'm offended by what he said. But I experienced it as this, like, there's a, this is a real loss uh, because of this. There's some unspoken stuff that's just not, that we're not talking about, that's just weighing down these interactions. Um, so, like I said, three little sort of short, um, you know, stories from kind of my background. Um, you know, and like I said, it's sort of my encounter with racism. Um, but I think part of the ways, you know, we don't all have, may necessarily have you know, crazy stories. But I think when you look at just facts, um, the facts that exist, it's impossible to deny that racism exists and systemic racism. I mean, just, I'm not going to read them all, but just highlighting a couple. I mean, you look, one in three black males born today can expect to go to prison in their lifetimes based on current incarceration rates. One in three. That's, that is incredible. Uh, in 2016, the median wealth for black households 25 years old and older was less than one-tenth that of similarly situated white, house, white households are the same. Black people stay in prison longer than white people, up to 20% longer than white people serving time for essentially similar crimes. So all things being equal, you know, 20% longer. So it's, these are some of the facts that they're there. They're, they're, you can't dispute them. Um, there's no way to explain them away. Racism, is, systemic racism is sort of alive and well. It's a sort of a well-oiled machine that's just, it's running and happening. Um, no one has to like prop it up and keep it moving. So again, this is sort of, this is racism. I think to us, you know, as Christians, to me, it's like, we're called to resist. Um, I think why it matters for us as Christians, um, sort of three basic things to me. Um, we're all made in the image of God. You know, Genesis 1, the Bible starts out with this. It's like we are all the same. We started out the same. We come from the same stuff. We are the same stuff. These divides that have been created are, are evil. In Galatians 3.28, I think this is such a good reminder. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, I mean, I think the bottom line for us is if we are who we say we are, if we're believers in Jesus, like, we are one in Christ. Um, the divides that were created, the evil systems that are in existence, like, we should be combating them on a daily basis. Um, this is something that we just can't let happen. Um, or even beg ignorance about. And I think finally, you know, we're literally commanded by Jesus to do this good work. Uh, again, in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. Um, I think to be anti-racist is to be a person that is pursuing love. Uh, to ignore it and just allow systems to run um, I think is the opposite of love. Um, I think it's evil. 
Um, I think it's destructive. I think we are called to be, as Jesus followers, to be anti-racist. So just the last thing I'd like to just talk about is a little bit about where I'm at now, where I'm at in this process, where I'm going with it. Um, I just put this up as this is just a really super compelling report. Um, some of the, the work, I'm gonna be starting my PhD in uh, organizational leadership uh, in the fall and really wanna kinda continue the anti-racist work I'm doing. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about this, but you know, locally, some of the stuff that I'm doing, you know, just recently getting involved in circle mobilizing because Black Lives Matter, led by our team leader back there, Bethany Stewart. Um, you know, big ups for Bethany. Um, you know, there's, there are local teams that are doing work around, um, you know, ending cash bail. Um, there's uh, so many good ways to be involved. So in terms of what I'm doing, like with this program I'm starting, um, is really looking to see, like, if we were to advance racial equality, um, what would that look like from an economic perspective? So I think, you know, part of being anti-racist for us on a person-to-person -person level, like, we can relate with people. It, it has to start with relationships. I can't just beat people over the head with facts. Like, I need to, we need to know each other. We need to get to know each other. Um, as a white man, I need to stop and just listen to people's stories instead of just give solutions. Um, but for organizations, I mean, what I'm talking about here is like major corporations. Corporations don't have souls. What runs through their system is not blood, it's money. So it's really to look at uh, corporations and say, like, to be anti-racist, what will it benefit you? Um, you look at, you know, one of the perfect examples of the way they monetize this is to say, like, if we were to create a system um, where we removed health disparities, it would create $135 billion in total economic gains per year. Um, so it's literally monetizing this. And it's saying to corporations, it's like, what is it costing you to be racist? What is it costing you to, to not respond in any way? Um, and I think, so I mean, that's, that's the work I wanna do. And I think the question sort of for all of us, um, you know, and then I speak, you look, look in this room, predominantly white folks, right? Um, on an individual level, like what is it costing us to not respond? Um, to not actively love and actively be uh, anti-racist. So that's kind of what I have um, in terms of a talk. I'm really interested to hear if people have questions or comments. Um, so sort of open it up. Yeah, Kevin. Uh, hi, I'm Kevin. I just tell you, um, I actually have talks about this type of stuff daily. Um, this is what most of my friends are black. Mm -hmm. uh, I can really count on one hand how many white friends I have. Um, I feel like because this is really a hot, 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 hot topic to touch. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I think the approach with it, like when I talk to my black and Hispanic friends about it, is that I just, I don't sugarcoat it when we talk about it. You know what I mean? I personally have been a victim of racial discrimination. The cops look at me the same exact way they would look at a black or Latino in the hood. Um, I have definitely had my life in danger because I am white in certain areas. And um, I feel like it plays both sides of the fence. And I think that, I mean, on a personal level, um, I choose not to be for it nor against it. 
I just separate myself from the whole thing and just look at it as like, if you're cool, you're cool. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I, in the beginning when you said the, the privilege, you know what I mean? Like that always, that never really sat well with me. Whenever mm -hmm. I heard white privilege, it's like, I, I was never in the least bit. You know what I mean? I come from a very poor family. Mm -hmm. You know? And um, I think that's a form of racism to assume. You know what I mean? Like that if I'm white, I'm privileged. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, I just feel like uh, I don't like any of it. I don't like any of it. I feel like the enemies here to divide. You know what I mean? Mm. That's a form of division in every sense of the word. And the government uses it as a form of division to divide us. And everything around this topic is meant to divide us. You know what I mean? Mm. Guys like you, and guys like me, who are trying to bring the kind of like just, I think the end result when so much to be equality, just forget the whole thing ever happened. And let's just start fresh from a point where we can grow as a community, hmm. you know what I mean? Rather than, you know, something else. I never owned a slave. You know what I mean? I never, you know, and I've never done anything. You know what I mean? I feel like I must help, help holding me accountable. You know what I mean? When it's hmm. this hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, one, I think, thanks for sharing. And I think we, you know, we want to honor everyone's experience. Um, I one of the distinctions I would make though is like, we're talking about things on a, like a system level. It's really hard not to talk about things uh, on just an individual level. Um, like I can tell you when I got, when I had, you know, I got held up like that. I felt, I was really angry. And I was angry at that guy. I mean, extremely angry. But that was sort of an individual like act of violence. Um, Part of what I think, you know, and I think this is, this is long and continues to be my struggle as a white man, is to say, you know, I'm part of a bigger thing, this bigger collective, and it's part of a system thing. Um, you know, there, I think you can, um, I, like, and again, as a white man, um, be against racism, um, but not feel like you're being um, like victimized yourself in some way. But I think it, it is, and someone mentioned it in the, in the five o'clock talk where it's like this, and you said it yourself, Kevin, it's like we need to be like not about dividing, we need to be about like being sort of bringing together and you know, allowing healing to take place. But part of that just has to be acknowledging you know, what's, what's happening right now, what happened in the past and also what's happening right now. Oh. Um, I think one of the, growing up in the similar place that you grew up, one of the um, biggest, like, cop-outs for white people is saying, like, I don't, I don't see it. Like, I don't see privilege, I don't see color. I'm just kind of, like, sorry, going back to what you were saying, like, I'm separate from it. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's, that in itself is privilege. That you can, that you can say... I'm, I'm separate from this. Like, I, mm -hmm. I'm going to just not engage in this. Because for people, for black people and Hispanic people who are literally dying because of their race, they don't really have that option to, like, say, yeah, I'm good. 
Like, I, I'm not going to engage in this divisiveness mm. or whatever. Um, and so I think I hear that a lot in, mm. in people who, who want to take a passive stance on it and saying, I just don't want to be in, involved in this. Like, I don't see this. I don't hear this. In the, and that's their privilege because they don't have to be. Mm. It doesn't their their life is in negatively um affected by that. I don't know. But I, I think that's one of those big ones when people say I'm not racist, I don't see color, I don't you know but the reality and I don't engage in that in anti racism. It's like ah I'm just not gonna touch it. And mm. that's just propagating more white privilege. Mm. That's a good point. Thanks. Lewis? Yeah, um, I had a similar experience to you like I got I saw, you know, it was nighttime and they, 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 they were hiding their faces. I could tell what, you know, what they generally looked like. I saw they looked like. But, um, yeah, I, even if I got a good look at their face, I wouldn't remember it. I was too much, like, panic and shock. Like, mm -hmm. you could see something, you know, whatever. And, yeah, I just kind of handed over my stuff to the cops. And then I was shocked at how they were they were riding me around the neighborhood trying to, does that look like them? Does that look like them? Or them? Because it's two people. And I was like, I didn't even care. I was like, I don't care about, I just want like my stuff back. Um, and I wanted to magically find the exact person. And that's kind of, that's mm -hmm. kind of the panic mindset. But I was in shock, because as I said, I was like, why are we driving around, going corner to corner, looking for random people? Like, mm -hmm. This is not a viable solution. It's not realistic. And it's, you catch the wrong person, you're just screwed. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I was a little bit spoiled because I went to high school where I was like, in a racial minority being white. And I didn't, at the beginning of high school, it was like culture shock or like I didn't know where. I, I had other problems too bothering me. So that was not something that was the most worried to me. But I kind of spoiled me eventually because I got so used to that. So used to like diversity around me and diversity in my theater and casting people. On state, putting the family on stage, you made up everybody in the family looks different from each other, and nobody cares because it's art and representation is good in that culture. So I kind of took that for granted. Mm. But um, I don't know if it's more shocking to see that, like driving around or looking at those pictures, you know, does that scare you? Does that scare you? And just jumping into the room. I don't know if it's more shocking for someone who is already accustomed to. Mm. Diversity around it, diverse people living around people who look different than you, or I don't know if it's like more shocking to you because of your like. Interesting. We may need to talk more. <laughs> I said we may need to talk more. <laughs> yeah, but it's shocking. It should be shocking. Yeah. That's a big problem. Not seeing people as individuals or as human. Yeah. What's up? Bethany, I can't see you behind the call. <laughs>
racism does move beyond like the way racism affects me and white supremacy affects me affects um, like my Asian brothers and sisters and Indian brothers and sisters in movement spaces mm. differently. Um, I had a friend describe it to me recently um, that like I'm always viewed as criminal, like my body is always viewed as violent and criminal. And mm. That's a great point. Jesus isn't white, right? We had that discussion. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's I think it's really going back. And I mean, if you want to, I, I think you can talk to some theologian, enlightened theologians, um, about it too. I mean, it's like going back to the source of Scripture. It's like there is uh, when you're looking at the person of Jesus, like it's a message of love, it's a message of freedom, and it's this like radical leveling. Um, you talk about like, and it sounds so like, you know, it's now become like a bumper sticker, you know, for Christians like slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, you know, it's but like, if we stop and actually think about that, what that actually means, it's like, that is transformative. Um, and we're like, we are called to be that. Um, but I think when it comes to like, you know, it was, we, it was brought up in the five o'clock too, it's like relationships. Uh, or, you know, people we, we love. Um, I think it has to start with the relationship. Um, probably the worst approach you could take is the one I took when I felt like, oh, I, got, I was woke in at college. I came home on break after j and I'm like, Mom, you're a racist? Dad, you're a racist? Like, you're all racist, you know. You need to, and, and they were just, they didn't know what to do with me. Um, but we just, you know, we've, we've had like subsequent conversations, but I think it's like this, um, it, it has to be sort of a slow, for some people, like, you know, different generations, slow getting there with them. Um, even for me in college, like what it took was my, you know, my, my Haitian roommate, who was my best friend, like, I didn't, I didn't believe him, I didn't trust him. I had to like live with him and like experience this sort of by proxy. In, that's what it took for me to believe one of my best friends. Like, that's crazy. But I mean, I think that's how difficult it can be and I think um, in many ways, you know, and I know where it's, it's a little deep, but in many ways it's like, the, 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 I don't know why the stakes are so high, you know, just to have, when we have a, a, a group get together and like Jesus isn't white, the, you know, the comment section blows up. It's like, was this even a thing? Whoever said Jesus was white? 
But every stained glass window you see, every, you know, Bible storybook, he is. So, but that's a tough one. I don't have an exact solution for sure. I'm writing it down. Great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.